Welcome back to part two of the podcast. I'm Jeffrey Madoff here with Dan Sullivan, and we're going to talk about anything and everything. Absolutely. So that brings us to, there's two kinds of relationships. I mean, maybe more, but. Aristotle says there's three, but. I'm sorry, who does? Aristotle. Oh, okay. Friendships, he calls them three kinds of friendships. One is, it's a friendship based on you're friends with somebody that you do business with, and you could even socialize with them, but nobody is under any illusion that it's not for business. And as long as the business is good, the friendship lasts, but it's never based on anything except the transaction. The second one is what he calls the friendship of pleasure. And he said these are momentary situations where you just have enormous pleasure with someone, but it only lasts for a period. You know, the very famous cruise romances or anything that happens like that. But he said the friendship that really holds things together is what he calls the friendship of the good. And he said one person sees something they really like in another person, and they try to capture what the other person is doing, but they can only do it in their way, and they do it. And the other person sees that and says, hey, that's really neat. I kind of like that. And they do that. So it goes back and forth. And I think what we were talking about with Dave Brubeck, where we were talking about with Miles Davis, is that they were playing off each other. The other person was doing something that they hadn't seen before. So they had to kind of amp up their game. I wrote a paper on this, the college I went to. I had a whole year on Aristotle once. You know, it just proves to me the point that smart is smart. And people a long time ago were just as smart in relationship to the world they were living as as the smartest people today. You know, smart is just smart. Well, I think you're right. I think that one of the things that we're dealing with now is that communication. There's so much more noise in the channel. So I agree with you. Smart is smart, regardless of when. But I think that these days, the communication channels have become so polluted that there's a lot of things that interfere with the clarity. And I don't think there was anywhere near the level of distraction. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there were less iterations. I mean, when we were kids and played telephone, depending on how many kids were at the birthday party around the table, the message really got screwed up pretty quickly, you know? And I think we're living at a time where there's very little pure communication and so much of it gets polluted so early that there's so much noise in the channel that it creates dissonance. And based on that dissonance, unity falls apart. Yeah, I think the other thing is that the noisemakers are in charge to a larger degree than they have been in the past. I'm just approaching now three years in three weeks or so. I'll be three years. I haven't watched any television. I've never done social media. I'm free of both those activities. And I'll sit talking and say, boy, things are crazy these days. Boy, things are crazy. And I said, yeah, I said, I think the crazy people might be louder today or they have more opportunity to be crazy in public. But I said, you know, I still think that probably the vast majority of people get up every day and they go about their business and they they work with other people and they get things done and they take care of their friends and they take care of their family. And I said, but it doesn't make news. It's not a newsworthy 
phenomenon. And I said, probably the amount of cooperation these days is greater than it's ever been, you know, from place to place. And that I think I'm kind of amazed at just the sheer amount of cooperation, you know, that actually happens to make the world go around every day. I think certainly when the history is written about how the pharmaceutical companies and the medical industry cooperated during a very short period of time and produced, you know, a solution for what could have been much more deadly disease, you'll see that it was unprecedented cooperation at that level. Yeah, I think there was a shared mission and there was an awful lot at stake. So I agree. And then the good news is that even with the variant, the existing vaccines have been actually better than anticipated. Yeah. Which is phenomenal. Yeah. So then let me ask, when we're talking about communication, we're talking about relationships. But I mean, look at the collaboration that you're experiencing on the play. Right. Okay. You know, right from the beginning, it may not be what other plays are experiencing, but you have a good case to make that this is really Broadway making at its best. Well, what can we learn from the things that you've talked about being nimble? I mean, it's great that you have the improv classes for your group to help them think on their feet and be more nimble and spontaneous and all of that sort of thing. How do we apply that to day-to-day life? How do we convince people? And I don't know if you want to get into this, but I think it's really interesting and you're an interesting person to ask. I think the title of our podcast is Anything, Everything, and Anything. We're everything. proving it. We're, we're, we're proving yeah, it. We haven't pre-limited ourselves to, to anything. But I think that uh, going back to the Second City training that we did and applying it generally to life, They have two rules in improv, and if you stick to these two rules and you get really good at them, it works almost in any area of life. The first rule is you never block your partner. If your partner starts with something, you go with it. Right. Okay? And the second rule is always help your partner. So the first thing is never say no, never block, and help out your partner. And all you have to be doing is really paying attention to your partner. That's the key. I've been asked since I've been out promoting my book and doing a ton of podcasts and so on. And people say, well, what's the key to a successful collaboration? I said, listening. And then when I'm being a wise ass, I'll say, I'm sorry, what'd you say? (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) and that's what you're saying. You need to be present and you need to listen. And then respond, not with what you wanted to say already ready as the other person is starting to talk, but like a great jazz improvisation you are listening so you can pick up and make that transition and it's seamless. Mm -hmm. And I think that we all need to be validated. And if I'm just saying what I wanted to say, and I've already had that in mind before you even spoke, you know, boom, you're just up against walls all of the time. But if you're able to be present and listen, that can open up communication. Maybe we find that there are more similarities than differences in some of these areas. There's kind of a confidence that goes along with it that hearing something you haven't thought about is not a bad thing. Right. Right. Hearing a different view on something you have thought about isn't a bad thing. I mean, that's how you learn, isn't it? Yeah. But what I mean is that we have some cultural rules in coach that everything's about unique ability, but I have one in there. 
and it's called No Defense Budget. No Defense Budget. People say, what's that mean, No Defense Budget? I said, well, you come to work every day with a certain amount of energy. I don't want you to spend any of that energy on defending yourself. <laughs> so interesting. you don't have to worry that you're going to be harshly ridiculed or insulted or put on the spot and everything else. I said, I just want everybody to use all their energy just for moving things forward. So no defense. Which, which is so great because I've been in so many meetings in large global companies and that isn't a part of it. <laughs> you know, that isn't a part of it at all. And I think that a lot of business leaders will use humiliation or embarrassment. So that may, if there's 20 people in the room, maybe you see that happen once or twice, and then you stop contributing. Well, the other thing is the overall level of cooperation there just isn't the electricity for any kind of cooperation. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What ends up happening is people shut down and then those same kind of managers mistake the somebody shutting down with agreement as opposed to it's emotional fatigue and they don't want to put themselves at risk. Yeah. So you lose so many good ideas and opportunities to allow people to flourish because they don't want to be humiliated. They don't want to be called out. God, I've seen that so many times, and I call it fear-based management mm -hmm. because oftentimes that business leader isn't open enough to broach a disagreement. One of my longtime clients who's in the free zone, and we learned after you know the lockdown started that he has very, very important clients who are at Zoom. They're with the Zoom company. And I was just telling him, I said, you know, I'm in total admiration of how well it's worked. We were about two months, maybe two months in. And I said, you know, not anything truly to complain about. I said, you know, pure glitches here, but not much. And I said, I have a sense that organization-wise, you know, you go from one-person companies to 100,000 people companies. I said that I don't think that depending on the organizational spirit that's at the center of a lot of organizations, I don't think everybody's responding to the Zoom thing as well as we are, you know. I love it. I mean, I love it. I know we're going to go back. And I said, you know, I have more to learn going the other way than I had coming this way. <laughs> I made the switch just like that. But, you know, I notice that I'm anticipating what it's going to be like to be back in a live room. You'll be back in a live room at the new school. And I said, I think you're going to notice that you use your energy up faster in a live space than you do in Zoom. So we talked about it. You know, I mean, everybody's got their own response. But I said, one of our clients has a wife who works at a large corporation. And she said, when they do Zoom meetings, they've got 12 squares or 18 squares, whatever it is, but there's no picture of anybody. It's just their name. It's just their name. You don't show who you are, where you are. And I said, you know why? Because I think that the actual full visual with Zoom, I'm just going to use Zoom. I mean, there's other platforms, but mm -hmm. I'm just going to use Zoom. It's kind of democratic. Everybody squares exactly the same. And guess what? What I got behind me is equally or not equally important as what you have behind you. 
I'm just dressed the way I'm dressed. And there's a kind of equality that you're seeing. So it really comes down to has anybody got something to contribute that's useful Mm -hmm. for everybody else. And I think it undercuts an enormous amount of politics that take place in organization because a lot of it is spatially determined. You know, who is in the most important seat? Well, on Zoom, you can't tell because you can move other people around. I always put myself right under the camera when I'm talking because then it looks like I'm looking at the camera. But I said, you know, Nobody's got a better position. You know, it's not what floor you're on. It's not where your office is. It's not how big your office is. You know, so I hadn't realized it until we got into Zoom, how much personal politics and organizational politics is spatially determined, Mm -hmm. you know, where Zoom takes that away, really. Zoom kind of takes it away. And sometimes I'll have, you know, I have 110 on some of my bigger calls and I go wandering. I go page one, page two, page three. And the first thing I do when I start is I call on somebody on page three, you know, who's on the third page and they pop up and they're kind of surprised, but I don't know what other people's experience is. So I just call and I say, what do you think about this? Great to have you today, you know, and everything like that, you know. So my sense is that you're going back to the right at the beginning when we started this you know, our talk here about inclusion, there's a sense of inclusion. And I think that everything is, it's kind of binary. If there's inclusion, it works. If there isn't inclusion, it doesn't work. I agree. I think that's true. And I think that an inclusion takes on many forms. And I think what we're talking about is having an open up enough forum that people can feel like they're contributing and heard. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And it's weird. I never feel quite as ripped off as when I go to a restaurant and if the experience isn't good. And, you know, there's nothing kind of more primal than eating, right? And so when you go into a restaurant, you want to feel welcomed. And that the smartest restaurateurs that I know are those that you are welcomed into their home, so to speak. But I think that goes, again, whether you're a retailer, whether you're doing a conference, whatever it is that you're doing, you know, when you are able to embrace, Mm -hmm. I think that is going to make a more successful enterprise, no matter what it is. Yeah. (laughs) I think our relationship memory lasts a lot longer than our stomach memory. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, wasn't it Maya Angelou that said people don't remember what you said, but they remember how you made them feel. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's really true. And, you know, so much of this has to do with how the rules of life day to day and relationships day to day. It's like there was the old mafia saying, at least from the movies, you know, which was nothing personal. It's only business. (laughs) Well, I think everything's personal. Yeah. You know, if you're going to cut my throat in business, you would do that in personal life too, (laughs) you know? Yeah. There's a client we have who's got the biggest company and coach ever. Like he's got about 10,000 employees, second generation, and it's janitorial services in 40 states. But he created another branch of his company, which was security, and it would include guard services and type of guards you would have on buildings after hours and everything like that. 
And the person who he got in as his president had been the second in command of the Secret Service detail at the White House. Secret Service, as we picture them, you know, guarding the president, that plays a very, very small part of what the Secret Service is, mainly combating counterfeiting. That's what Secret Mm. Service is about. Their number one role, you have to protect the dollar more than you protect (laughs) any president, you know, but they do that. But he had been in the White House, I think, under five or six presidents. He said, you know, it makes a huge difference of how the president treats his bodyguards. He said, you wouldn't imagine how there's energy there, there's not energy there. And I asked him, what was his best experience? And he said it was the senior Bush, Bush number one. He said that he knew everybody by their first name, and he generally knew quite a bit about your family. He knew who your kids were. He would ask how your kids are doing. If your kids were competing for something, he'd ask how that turned out. And he said, invariably in the morning, or very early in the morning, like six or seven, and there's a staff kitchen in the White House, you know, where everybody goes for meals. He would come down and he would just sit and have coffee and he would talk about how things are going. And he always got together with the, you know, the details that were with him when he was going into it. And he says, can you tell me how I need to perform here so that you feel good about protecting me? Interesting. Interesting. And you know, it's also interesting because you're talking about how do you make people feel welcome and a part of something. Yeah. But the president of the United States calls you by your first name and asks right. how your kids are doing by name. Yeah. And then wants to know what he can do to make this work today. Yeah. Somehow I think if the president can do that, maybe other people can too in their day-to-day life. So what you gave is a really good example of both sides perceiving a benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, how important do you think that is? Oh, yeah, totally. And to a certain extent, each has to know what the other side thinks is a benefit. In other words, right. absolutely, yes. It's not so much that both are receiving the benefit, but both partners kind of have a notion of what the other person really considers is valuable. Yeah, I mean, how can you enter a negotiation or any deal process? without understanding what the other side hopes to get out of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to be very effective at that negotiation if you don't have a sense of that. If you're only thinking about what you want out of it, I think that's going to be a real hindrance in accomplishing anything. I'm reading, I just started it a couple of days ago. It's a book called The Words That Made Us. And it's a period from around 1761 to 1787 in New England, basically New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. And it's about all the conversations and communications that went on that went from the what's really considered the beginning of the opposition to Great Britain, 1761, to the passing of the Constitution, Mm. the actual Constitution. So it was about 26 years a lot of the players that were really there, Adams, John Adams is there right from the beginning, not known to each other, but Jefferson was known and Washington was already involved. But the interesting thing about it is how the British didn't have to have this happen <laughs> at all. 
they just had to kind of see what it looks like from somebody who's 3,000 miles away from us, that they really want to be full-fledged English people. And the big thing was that up until just a short time before the actual revolution in 1776, the colonists would have done anything not to do what they felt that they had to do. But there was just no listening on the other side whatsoever. There was almost contempt towards these people, you know. And there's a few very famous Brits who come out very well. William Pitt, the younger, he's featured in The Madness of King George. Remember the movie, The Madness of King George? But King George was king for 55 years. I mean, mm. he's kind of like the great-grandfather of the queen, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, they last a long time, these royals do. There was a scene where Franklin was the most want-to-stay-an-Englishman Benjamin Franklin was, and he was sent as the ambassador to London. He was actually the more or less the country's ambassador before it was a country the U.S. They said that he went to London with the full intent of working on an agreement where there could be two Englands, you know, the ancient England and a new England, and they worked together. And he was taken into a committee meeting where he was just totally insulted for about two hours. He had to sit there and take it. He couldn't say anything. He would just sit there and took it. You know, one arrogant person after another just telling him, you know, you should even be lucky. You, know, you should even be lucky that we send ships there. You should even be lucky that we've done this and we've done this and everything like this. And he came out and he said, um, I'm no longer an Englishman. I'm now an American. And he went back and that was when they insulted Franklin, who was apparently easy to get along with, you know, he was very, very famous in all of Europe, he was a very famous person. And what they didn't realize was how loyal the American colonists were. They really, really wanted to be part of the club, but they wouldn't allow them to be part of the club. So how much do you think the notion of empathy, where the old walk a mile in their shoes, how do you foster the discovery of what, let's call it the other side, is looking for so that you can have a better communication, a better collaboration. The way that I've kind of thought my way through it, because every quarter I meet with about 500 people and each of them, their company and their career and ambition is the center of their world, their family, their team, their clients, the center of the world. And what I try to do is to say, you know, that I'm just one world here and I've got a center. But if you want to be treated right, you've got to grant the same thing to everybody else. In other words, whatever I want for myself, I want people to pay attention to me, to take me seriously. I have to grant that to the other person. The old do unto others. Yeah, it's very, very much that. But it's a thing that my sense is that from the center of this person's universe, everything he's saying makes complete sense. Right. Exactly. Right. It doesn't necessarily make sense to me, but I know it makes sense to him right. or it makes sense to her, and that it's logically put together as my universe is put together. Right. And without that understanding, you're working across purpose. Oh, well, yeah. And it's an interesting thing because the other person picks up on it right away. I mean, this isn't something you can fake. I've been reading, you know, behavioral books 
they say that eight-month-old babies already know who they like and who they don't like. That is a skill that's really inborn in humans. It's why I never liked a phone. I have been really, really not a great phone guy all my life. And the reason is I can't see the face. I can't see the face. And that's why I love Zoom so much is I can talk to people from Singapore. I talk to them from Australia. I talk to them from Mumbai and everything, but I can see the face. We have enormous, what I would say, sensors that pick up. Does all this make sense? I mean, is the person really being straight? And that's why I love Zoom so much is because I used to really hate phone calls. Well, so that's contrary to what you were saying earlier about how Zoom democratized when you didn't have the picture up. No, no. It's democratized because you do have the picture up. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood that. I thought... Yeah. In the corporations, they don't allow the picture be taken because it interferes with the hierarchy. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I'm glad we cleared that up because we were in two different domains there for a while. However, I sensed it was important to you. Yeah. And from (laughs) your center, you know, that was important. So how do you assess the importance of likability and the importance of competence? And let's assume we're not talking about somebody who's going to perform surgery on us, (laughs) but in terms of business, are there people that get along or do well more based on their likability rather than their competence, you know, in terms of winning people over? What do you think wins people over? Short-term likability, long-term competence, but you can't have dislikability. In other words, the person may not be likable, but it's more of a neutral than it is a positive. It's just someone you don't click with, but competence really matters. You know, in other words, I have 20-year team members and coach, and there's no click. You know, I mean, when we get there, you know, there's just no click, but they're really good at what they do, and they're totally dependable, and you can totally rely on them. You know, so let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a really, really good working relationship with someone that other people found dislikable, but you didn't find them dislikable? Mm. You were just there for the skill and the capability. You kind of admired them. You know, I mean, you weren't negative towards them, but they weren't dislikable. I mean, there's people that I get along with that people say, I just don't know how you can get along with that person. And I said, well, I'm not seeing what you're seeing. I'm seeing something different. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think when I'm going for a certain level of expertise, you know, whether it's a doctor or an accountant or whatever, the way in might be likability. But, you know, again, as you said, that's kind of short term in a certain way, because what I'm ultimately looking for is can they do the job I'm hoping they can do? Yeah. I'll give you an example, a really kind of strange example. So we just completed a big litigation and it's all signed in over. And I was deposed by the opposing lawyer for eight hours. It was a woman and she was really going at me nonstop. And about halfway through, I said, you know, I kind of like her. (laughs) Yeah. And then she wasn't being likable. I mean, she wasn't being likable, but about halfway through, I said, you know, I kind of see where she's coming from. I can kind of feel, you know, and, you know, the way it's going to work out from is that we have something enormously in common. 
And the same person is going to pay everybody's legal bills. So, <laughs> so, you know, I didn't respond at all negatively. And I got a lot of compliments from Babs and from our legal team. I mean, she threw some real curveballs at me. And, you know, there was some what could be interpreted as slightly disrespectful. But there was something about it that I just kind of understand she's doing her job and this is doing her job. And, you know. It's okay. It doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I think when you get to that level of insight, it also, I think, keeps you from getting rattled. Yeah. Because, you know, the novice, and you can be a novice and have been in business for decades, the novice takes it as a personal attack as opposed to realizing it's part of a strategy. Yeah. And they're doing, as you said, doing their job. Yeah. And, you know, the law court or the legal proceedings is very adversarial. I mean, it's designed to be adversarial. And I don't think you could really be that good of a lawyer if you weren't able to establish that, you know, that my job is that you don't win. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And again, part of that is not getting rattled, yeah, staying on your game because you realize they're playing their game. Yeah. You know, so the best strategy is to... Yeah, you know, it's really weird how you can sort of pick up on people who, you know, like I was watching these two clips on Putin, Vladimir Putin, and one of them is the weirdest thing. I mean, it's so weird, it's creepy. And it starts off, and Vladimir Putin is sitting down at a piano, and he just starts fingering the keys. He's got a tune. And then behind him is this big orchestra, big orchestra, like a 25-piece orchestra. And then it starts in, and it's Fats Domino's Blueberry Hill. And Vladimir Putin sings it in English. Oh, my God. So he's playing the piano, and he sings it. Then the camera comes out, and it's all must be a can or something like that. It must be a, a big film festival because there was noticeable and identifiable celebrities there. And he got up and sang the rest of the song. And, you know, it's in very, very pronounced Russian accent. You can imagine a, somebody with a heavy Russian singing the lyrics and everything. And he gets this huge applause. And I said, this is one of the creepiest videos I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> okay. And then there's another scene of him singing the Russian national anthem at the Winter Olympics. And he starts the singing and 80,000 people sing. And it's very endearing. It's very, very endearing because you really get the sense of a kind of patriotic loyalty that really came from doing that. So I was watching the two, and I went back and I watched the first one again. I said, what is it? And I said, I think being the leader of Russia is a really tough job. <laughs> you know, I was just sitting there, I said, and that turns out he's got 15 homes and he never lets anybody know which one he's staying in that night, you know, like everything. I said, you know, being leader of Russia, I bet that's a really tough. And so I was kind of saying is, how does this guy kind of hold his, day together? How does he kind of hold his thoughts together, you know, given what they've been through over the last hundred years or last thousand years? I mean, it's never, it's never been a good place to lead. 
and everything like that. But there was something that really connected about him, and it was especially the contrast because he was doing it just to troll people. You know, the Fats Domino, he was just trolling the audience. He was kind of trolling the United States. He said, I'm going to sing Fats Domino. I bet the American president can't sing a Russian song. He apparently speaks English, but never in public. But then when he sang the national anthem, I said, you know, I kind of get this guy. You know, I mean, there's part of him that just loves his country, you know, and it's not just about him being in charge and him being, you know, the, you know, the head man and, you know, whatever else goes along with that. So it's kind of interesting. But if you can detach that this isn't about you, you can just go over into the other person's world. And I says, boy, I wonder what it looks like from the inside with him. Yeah, I think it's interesting because he's certainly done a lot to hold on to the power. So I don't think that power is separable from the equation. And he probably has 15 different homes because he's managed to find his detractors wherever they are and have them killed. Yeah. So uh, he probably thinks if I can do that to them, they can do that to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, so Yeah. I mean, has he ever known another environment except the one that he grew up in you know and it's uh, really not yeah no you know and he apparently you know was just devastated when the soviet union collapsed well but it made him a multi-billionaire yeah yeah Yeah. you know so at least that's some comfort (laughs) when things collapse i was just talking about that i think the big thing about teamwork is that there has to be an ability that it's not really about you. It's about the other person. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. Adam Smith, very interesting. 1776 is the Declaration of Independence, but it's also the publishing of the Wealth of Nations, which is um, Adam Smith. And in the opening paragraph, he says, you know, it's not out of charity that the baker, the butcher, the provide you with a good product and great service out of their own self-interest. And that the basis of economics is that people pay attention to their self-interest. You know, they conduct themselves with other people in order that they get properly rewarded for their self-interest. Very interesting about him that on his gravestone, and I've been to the cemetery in Glasgow, the Scott, and where he's buried, it's Adam Smith, these years to these years, the author of The Theory of Moral Sentiments, not The Wealth of Nations. I'm not sure what the timing was, but he was a professor of moral philosophy. And they didn't have a thing called economics in those days. There wasn't a position called economics. And he writes another book. He's got a paragraph. And if you took the two paragraphs together, you've got the complete marketplace circle that you and I have talked about a lot. And he said, you know, even though everybody is out for his own self-interest, nevertheless, human beings have a remarkable ability to actually detach from their self-interest and put themselves in the place of someone else and to kind of experience what the other person is feeling. And a lot of people want to make it contradictory. You see, he didn't believe in that wealth of nation. I said, no, it's just the other half of the circle. That to really have your self-interest really work over a lifetime You've got to have a phenomenal ability to see things from the other person's point of view. Yeah, it's fascinating because also, and this may be for next time, but the notion of even understanding what your self-interest is. Yeah. You know, because I think 
in these times, I believe, although I understand the arguments, I believe that, you know, with COVID, we're dealing with a public health issue, not a political issue. And yet there are a lot of people working against their own self-interest, which is good health and the stopping the spread of disease. On the other hand, now that some of these states have put in incentives, they've decided to sacrifice whatever alleged principle there was and take the incentive and get vaccinated. But of course, not enough people. And we've shown historically in the past, be it measles, mumps, or polio, disease can be eradicated. Mm -hmm. So where does self-interest come in? And where does an understanding of, you know, actually that's not in your best interest. In the best interest is doing this, not that. Mm -hmm. And can't you see that? And because there are these situations, and boy, this is one of them, we're all in it together. So I find that really interesting because I think it's such a hugely contentious point. And there are legitimate concerns for people to have, Mm -hmm. you know, but there are compelling arguments. And if you think you're serving your best interests, maybe you're not. You ought to reexamine that. And how do you determine that? And I think, by the way, that you can reduce that down to even more simple business things where people may not realize because so many people get consumed with what they perceive to be as winning as opposed to moving something forward in a good way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think in both situations, farsightedness is important for both sides. Yes. If I do this today, what's it look like 10 years from now? And I was reading just a fascinating book. I'd finished last week. We had a cottage week, so we were away at our cottage. And it's fascinating. And I think it's part two of Darwin. I think this writer has actually created the next step from Darwin. His name is Joe Henrich, H-E-N-R-I-C-H, about 50, as near as I can figure. And he's written a book called The Secret of Our Success, And it's why humans who, from a physiological standpoint, were not an outstanding animal on the planet. And yet, by any combination, we control the planet against much bigger animals. And we're the only fully cultural species. Others are biological species, and they have some social aspects like You know, wolves, we know wolves and some of the canines have social aspects. Some of the primates, you know, the whales and the dolphins, that they have social thing. But ours is the only species that shares learning while we're alive, but sets it up so that those who live after us get even more learning. And we're the only ones who have done it. So he takes it back and he said, there were other human-like creatures, Denisovans, were even closer to us than the Neanderthals. He said this one species breaks through and goes to the other side. And he said the biggest thing was that we became enormously interested in what other people were thinking. There was something about what happened to the brain, you know, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. The brain is only about at 2% its maximum size when a baby's born. Otherwise, the skull wouldn't fit. (laughs) The skull wouldn't come out. Not until they're 24 does a human have a fully developed brain. He says, and 
development just doesn't mean individual intelligence. It means this cultural intelligence. Everything that we've been talking about today has really been a cultural explanation. You and I have really, really interesting, and surprisingly, we've kind of traveled through the same fields and forests and everything and come up with different insights and everything. And he says, and this is what makes humans enormously cooperative because they're passionate about that what Jeff Madoff knows is really valuable to me along the way. You know, it's that sense that what this other person knows is really valuable. And I really want to find out what this person knows. He's just saved me a lot of time. It took him five years to get this insight, and I get it in five minutes. And what that ties into, which I think would be a great topic for us to explore, is trust. Because if you believe that the information resonates with you, you know, I trust Dan. And so what Dan suggests, I want to do because I trust him. Yeah. You know, most of us, whether you're talking about climate change, vaccinations, a good investment, which house to buy, oh, I recommend this doctor, this financial man, whatever it is, it's all based on trust. Yeah. We don't examine all that stuff. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but if a trusted source recommends that, you go that way. And well, it's, it's an enormous time and energy saving. Yeah, but it could also take you in the wrong direction. Yeah. If you trust the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we keep score. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, we do. Anyway, I think we've satisfied the box. Everything and every anything. Did we, <laughs> did we check off each box today? <laughs> There's an infinite number of those boxes. And we certainly, yeah. I lost count of how many we have checked off. Yeah. Great. And check off with somebody else we can talk about next time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, real pleasure, but we can go there because I think this man, Joe Henrik, is really bright and a very interesting background. I'll say this just before we leave because some people might go out and get it. He said that, first of all, he did his undergraduate degree in anthropology, which kind of fits, but he did his postgraduate degree in aerospace engineering. Mm. And they worked for Martin Marietta, you know, the aerospace company. But he just felt that Darwinism, natural selection, doesn't explain humans at all. Explains everything else, but doesn't explain humans. Why humans are so different. And he said the other creatures don't communicate and cooperate like humans do. And this dovetails into what I'm currently reading which is called The Information. And The Information, it's by James Gleick. Oh, I, I had read his other book, Faster, which is amazing. And he talks about how we communicate. And it's so dense and so interesting. Well, I sucked up the two Tim Wu books that you mentioned. And I was just noticing that, you know, they're starting the hearings in Washington now, you know, it's going to be a 10-year process. But my feeling is that the platforms today, Facebook and Google, everything, are probably as powerful as they're going to get. Mm -hmm. And that they're now in a defensive mode. All of them are in a defensive mode. But one of the names they mention is Tim Wu, because he's a prominent guy in Washington right now. He's on the Council of Economic Advisors. He's on the Council of Economic Advisors. 
they're talking, they think that this is a big thing because it's bipartisan, is that both the Democrats and Republicans are equally. Right. You can mark the periods in history when the two come together. It's bad news for the other side when both political sides get together. But my experience from talking to people in Silicon Valley, they are abysmally ignorant of anything except what they do. Right. Well, talk about no empathic yeah. response. Yeah. Yeah. The mission is very different than that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Wonderful two hours. Always is. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com. Thank you.